What do you do on Sundays? We talk about Kate Blanchett, the acting, the costumes, the awards, but mostly the Blanchett of it all. Oh, oh. I'm not acting. <laughs> you think this is a love affair? I saw you, Erica, meeting in the middle. This is Sundays with Kate, and I'm your host, Mortada El Fadl. Time is the thing. Time is the essential piece of interpretation. You cannot start without me. Welcome to Sundays with Kate, the podcast series about the films of Kate Blanchett, and to this addendum season where we're discussing Kate Blanchett's collaboration with Todd Field in Tar. In the last couple of episodes, we've discussed Todd Field's previous films, Little Children, and In the Bedroom, and the time has come. It is Tar Day on Sundays with Kate. And for this conversation, I'm very excited to welcome to the podcast programmer and critic Rafa Sales Ross. Rafa, hello. Hello. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me to discuss Star and to join the podcast. You're welcome. I have, we've been like talking on social media for um, probably years now, at least a couple. And, you know, I'm a fan of your work. But, and I wanted to have you on the podcast. And I remember you were one of the very first people to see Tara at Venice. And when um, you came out of the screening or that day, um, you said um, in a tweet that Kate Blanchett is an event of an actress. And I wanted to ask you, that totally resonated with me. Obviously, I, I have this podcast. I think Kate Blanchett is amazing. I love her, but I never thought of her that way. But it's still what you said really resonated with me. I'm like, yes, she is an event. So I want you to tell me why you think of her as an event. Oh, thank you so much. You're very kind. Um, I think I think of her as an event because... If she's in it, I'm excited about it. It's something that's in my calendar, something that I will go see it. It can be a film that I'm not particularly looking forward to or that actor that I'm not a big fan of. But if she's in it, I am automatically drawn to it. And it pays off every single time. She's not only a fantastic actress, but she is a complete performer. She has a domain over her body, over her voice, over her mannerisms that is so magnetic to watch. So it's always a pleasure to be able to witness her in anything, really. Um, so, yeah, I'm always excited about Kate Blanchett. Yes, I feel the same way. And how exciting it is for her to give us 157 minutes of Kate Blanchett in a movie. Um, in Tar, for, for those who haven't seen it yet and who love Kate, you're in for a treat because um, in her career, she has played a lot of supporting roles. She always sort of like, she does, she mixes between supporting and leading. And for those of us who love her when she's in a movie like Nightmare Alley, which she's great in, but she doesn't appear in until, and more than an hour into and then she's not in it for that long and then you get tar she's in from the first frame to the last frame she's in every scene not every shot you know you can't ask for the moon but she is in every scene they do cut away to some others but anyway and those are the it. least interesting moments <laughs> yes totally <laughs> Um, so Tar is definitely an event, like Rafa said, and it is a treat uh, for Kate fans. But also, if, what I really loved about this film, and the first thing that I thought about it, and I've seen, I'm lucky enough to see it a couple of times because um, because it played several times at the New York Film Festival, and I was, you know, I went 
to the press conference because Kate was going to be there. And so I was not going to miss the press conference. My husband and I already had gotten tickets and we were going to see it together. And then Kate was announced at the press conference and I was like, oh, I'll just go see it again. Um, and so I went to the press conference to see her and then I went to the screening that we had tickets for. And then I was assigned a review. So I saw it three times. But the more I see it, the more like, it's not just a movie. Like what I think about it now, this is an oral and a visual experience. You you called Kate an event and I'm calling Tar an oral and visual experience. I think, especially this year, personally, I haven't loved a lot of movies. Like there's always good movies and there's always movies to see. And as a programmer, you know that you see lots and lots of movies from all over the world and different stories and experiences and all of that. So there's always stuff to see. But I haven't been as flabbergasted by movies a lot this year. And this is definitely one of those moments. Yeah, um, it's funny that you're saying this because I felt the same this year. Last year, I had so many films that I was just mind blown by um, films that I loved dearly. And this year it was a bit harder for me to connect with what I was seeing. And my favorite film of the year so far, After Sun, um, has a commonality with her in the way that the hands feel so vital to it. And I just kept thinking about movements of hands and how much it conveys and how I connect to films that really explore small gestures that are turned into statements. And every time I think about Tar, I just get back to hands and fingers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just so mesmerized by it just comes back to my head so it, it is a wonderful film when it gets into these moments really yeah I haven't seen After Sun yet but I will see it probably before this podcast drops because it is playing at New York Film Fest too um I love the what you said about the hands and there is a lot of hands because musicians do use their hands they are the things they use to play their instruments and of, of course Lydia Tarr is the conductor she uses her hands for conducting and there are a lot of close-up to hands in in the work setting, in the rehearsal room, but also in other settings and other sort of situations. Um, but we before we get into the the deep with Tar, let's set the let's set the stage for Lydia Tar. This is the titular character, another one after Carol and Blue Jasmine and Bernadette, and so many for Kate. She's Lydia Tar. She is a composer and a conductor. She is the principal at the Berlin Philharmonic. Um, And when we meet her at the beginning of the film, the film takes place over a few weeks. She's basically at the height of her career. She's somebody very respected. They tell us she's an EGOT. And the world they build in those few scenes at the beginning, it's a world of luxury, a world of reverence, a world of privilege, where she is, you know, whisked around New York, where she's meeting, um, doing an onstage talk with Adam Gopnik of The New Yorker, where she is being fitted for these wonderful, luxurious um, suits that she wears for work. Um, Her assistant is doing her bidding. Um, She travels by private jet. Um, And I think more than all the luxury and the privilege and all the sort of material things that obviously are in her world, what you get from that is that intellectually, 
she is above. She's somebody who is thought of as perhaps a genius, as somebody who is really accomplished at the top of her field. If there is a hierarchy in the field, and it, this movie is about hierarchical institutions, she is at the top. And what the movie slowly sort of then starts to peel for us is that what happens when you are at the top? Not only, it, this is not just a power money thing. It's not, um, um, what's the TV show? I can't remember a thing. Um, succession. <laughs> succession, exactly. You talk about rich people. Like, are you talking about those rich people from Succession? <laughs> I forget titles all the time, succession. So it's not just money and power, but I think what's sort of rarefied at this world, it's a cultural privilege. She's at the top of the pecking order of a cultural institution. She is a top musician and conductor. Like this is success upon success. Obviously, when you get to that point in culture, you get the money and power and everything. But more than just money and power, this is somebody thought of for their accomplishment, for their art. Yeah, um, it's a very interesting thing because I was obviously excited about Tar because of Kate, because of Todd Field, Nina Haas and all of that. But I was raised very working class. I didn't go to the theater. I didn't have access to any of this sort of cultural world. But I did start going to see the orchestra every Tuesday night when I was a teenager because it was free. I would get a bus and go and see it just to be in the theater and see all of that. And I remember getting to this room and feeling incredibly small because everyone just walked like they were as big as the theater itself. And it's the sort of confidence and privilege that is very specific to this sort of um, area of society. And here is very interesting. Everything is very polished. Those nicely written burns, um, the way that they speak to one another, the way that they dig at one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just very reflective of the the status quo and and the place in society that they find themselves in um it's a very odd little niche and a very interesting one very cinematic one as well yeah it's it is like you said it's it's a very rarefied world and the way that Todd feels sort of his camera sort of shows us that world is through the objects right like the rehearsal room how big it is the doors the huge doors that open there's so much space um um, where Lydia lives. Um, it's also in, it's in Berlin. It's this sprawling big apartment and she has another sort of like smaller studio where she works. Um, and all these spaces um, have just a sense of privilege in them, but also a sense of power. And, you know, we talked about a little bit about her costumes. It's her costumes. You know, if, if you don't like, if you don't have a maybe a discerning eye, you would think she's just wearing suits, but she's wearing suits that are fitted exactly to her, that are, you know, that look really expensive, that look as if they could not have been made for someone else. And she's she's wearing these shirts that I think may be linen, but they also just look so unique. They're also obviously made. Um, made to custom and not just made to custom because it's Kate Blanchett in a movie and, you know, customs are made from movie stars all the time, but because Lydia Tarr herself gets her, um, her clothes done 
just right. So all of this, all of these visual things that are at the beginning, and here we're just literally talking about the first 10 minutes or 20 minutes, something like that, no more than that. All these things kind of tell us about this world um, and how everybody sort of like treats her. Um, she, she sort of like treats people differently. Sometimes she's nice when she wants something from someone. And most of the time she's just dismissive because she knows that she's better. She's smarter. She is more powerful. She's more talented. The precision, the fact that you're talking about the first 10 minutes, it's, it's brilliant the way that they say, look, this film is going to be about precision, about reaching perfection and then losing it. And how do you react to this when every single bee of your life has been as perfectly um, measured as a Bach symphony? Um, so her clothes are perfectly measured. Her hair is perfectly measured. The, her, the cadence of her voice is perfectly measured. The words that she uses, there's not a, an, a preposition in excess. Um, nothing is out of place. And her life is guided by a metronome. And this is reflected in every single thing that she does, which is interesting to see. Yeah, yeah. It is really, really um, interesting to see. And I wanted to um, to start talking about Lydia as a character. Um, so we talked a little bit about sort of like her world, but once we sort of get this world and we sort of, you know, the audience is seduced by all of this, right? Like this is the brilliance of those first two moments. You wanna be in the presence of greatness. You wanna be in the presence of somebody so talented. And then slowly, little by little, they sort of like, they show us like this sharp, wonderful script from Todd Field sort of shows us what else is there. And we discover she is really drunk on power. She's a narcissist. She's dismissive of almost everybody. She doesn't respect anybody, even her wife. Every relationship in her life has a lot of deception and hidden truth and hidden things that are not apparent. Like we see her with her assistant and you think, oh, this is, you know, a benevolent boss who's nice to her assistant, who's respectful and whatever. And then as we see her more, we know that that's not the case. And she's only um, nice and seductive and and to sort of cajole the assistant to do her bidding and do the things that she wants her to do. And the same thing with her wife. She's manipulative in, in her marriage um, so that she can do all the other things that we're not, we're not going to tell you what they are. But I think if you, if you have a cursory knowledge of this film, you know that things happen. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, Rafa, what did you think of this sort of like this, I think just an amazing character study of a narcissist in free fall. Yeah, um, it was interesting because even during Venice and that first screening and, and listening to people talk about the film afterwards, there's a lot of conversation that is guided by gender, um, by confining this character through the lenses of look women can be mean and narcissistic and self-involved too. Um, What a revelation. And I think it's very simplistic to look at it that way. I think um, it is a a very well-crafted character study. And even though, and we're going to get to it eventually, I think he loses himself a little bit in his conclusion. When he hits a certain stride, when he gets to certain beats, 
it is very impactful. Um, I think much of the dialogue is written to land as a punch. Sometimes it works in favor of the script, sometimes not so much. But when it does, it's just a perfect encapsulation of all the sociopathic traits that often allow people to comfortably occupy positions of power. Power is not something that comes um, easily, um, normally, or without some sort of effort. And a lot of the times this effort comes at the expense of other people. So the way that she converses with the people that are below her, um, and she goes into niceties. She's feeding people little um, bits of kindness and little bits of favors because she knows that if she keeps them just a little bit hungry, they're always going to come back for more. Um, yeah. And it's just incredible to say. I think Noemi Merlin, and I'm probably butchering her name. I'm so sorry, French people. Uh, <laughs> she's so good in this because she's she's like a little mouse she's just around her and she's waiting for those crumbs uh and she's the assistant the assistant yeah exactly uh and the relationship between these women in in this parasocial relationships uh, Mm -hmm. is interesting and even with mark strong's character um he is a not a competitor he's obviously below her but they have that scene where they're having lunch mm-hmm. and it's this great tennis match between a person who knows how to handle tricky power plays and a person mm-hmm. who does not. Yeah. he He's a sort of wannabe composer who wants to like basically bask in her glow and, and wishes he could be as talented in her as her. And she just knows he's a parasite. So she, but he has money and some power. So she can't completely discard him. So like you said, she knows just exactly how to keep him at bay. Yeah. And a terrible wig. That was one of the lows <laughs> of that. Fun. When that wig shows up, I'm like, oh my God, what have they done to the Stanley Tucci of the multiverse? Oh, um, strong. Yeah. Mark, Mark Strong's wig. It's so funny because you know, in this movie, the credits run before the movie. Um, and so you kind of have to see all the credits. And there is a credit that I noticed for Mark Strong's wig maker. So somebody is culpable. <laughs> I am so sorry, wig maker, and the very small chance that you listen to this. I made a great job. Um, I'm so sorry. Uh, I don't make wigs. Yes. But it is, but also it's like, because he's he's supposed to be like, kind of a ridiculous character, right? Like he's probably like Mark Strong as we know him, he's sort of like imposing and majestic was his bold dome. Um, and so they gave him this sort of like kind of ridiculous wig with longish hair. And this is someone who probably is just really a suit with money, but he wants to be seen as an artist. So he keeps his hair long, whatever. So I think it is a bad wig, but it's also, he looks ridiculous. And I think that fits the character. <laughs> yeah, I, I love Todd Field because he got some uh, very um, clunky men. Truly, the women are the highlight of this film. Every single male character is a bit of a, a joke in, in an aspect of another. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you about it, is that this is somebody who 
like we said, is a genius, is very smart. And we see her genius. And, you know, she takes this noise um, that she hears from coming from a neighbor's apartment and she makes a beautiful piece of music out of it, just like that, you know? And this is sort of like the way that the movie shows that she's a genius. But the other thing that is the antithesis of this is that as she's in this free fall where things are transpiring around her and things are being revealed, she's completely in denial and she doesn't deal with it at all. She doesn't deal with the fact that there are accusations against her. She doesn't deal with the fact that she might have to give, um, to, to go to court. She doesn't deal with the fact that, you know, this will affect her family and her job. She's just like, she just goes through her life. She's like focused on, on this recording that she wants to do and ignores all this, which is like, how can somebody, and that's sort of like the hubris of power, right? She doesn't think it's going to happen. Anything is going to happen to her. Who cares? As she calls everybody who's not her, a robot. These robots are not going to be able to bring her down. I am sorry. Um, I am going to make an odd comparison here but this makes me think of the netflix phenomenon the revenge because it's just these teenagers plotting against one another and the thing that they say every time before they plot something is that it is easier to plot against a narcissist because they are often too concerned with themselves to realize what is happening around them and this is an aspect of it here um that she's obviously incredibly self-involved but as we come to learn from the film, and I don't want to spoil it too much, this isn't a position that came to her naturally. She wasn't born into a lineage of privileged people within the musical sector. So there is also this idea of self-preservation. She has fought so much to get there that the idea of losing it all is not only inconceivable, but it is destroying it will destroy her so self-preservation comes into it and she just needs to keep going she stops and realizes that everything's on the line everything she has worked for it is far too painful and it's inconceivable in her head yeah yes absolutely um we will get into spoilers um later in the podcast but first let's give the people what they want to know um how fantastic how great this performance is what Kate Blanchett does um in this we talked a little bit at the beginning at the top that she's an event of an actress but this is a role that is very rare this is something that even an actor of Kate Blanchett's stature does not get a role like this every year this is as Todd Field kept saying everywhere he wrote it specifically for her he would not have done it um, if she had said no or wasn't available. And when, you know, the portrait of this character that we just told you about, like there are not that many actors who can pull this off. But when Kate Blanchett is on screen, you believe her as somebody who's a genius. You believe her as somebody who's this talented, who could be at the top of the world. And I think she digs into the, she's, she digs into this role just ferociously. Like, um, 
I've obviously watched her and studied her performances for a long time. I know most of her tics and all her voice things and the way she sometimes commands the frame and would move her body and glide to sort of like, you know, make make us um, make an impact and all of that. And when you see something like um, Nightmare Alley last year, I'm not going to say it's a performance that was boring or anything, but it's a performance that was familiar. It felt like putting on an old um, pair of shoes. It's comfortable. It's familiar. We've seen it. It's still funny and great and, you know, entertaining to the max and all of that. But it is not anything new. But as Lydia Tarr, I have to say, everything is new to me. Um, some of the things that were new to me, and then I'll I'll, I'll let you... Um, Tell me what you found new. Some of the things that were new to me is the timbre of her voice is deeper. Um, the way she moves, her gait um, is completely different. She's playing, as she calls, as she says herself, a U-Haul lesbian. And that is reflected um, in the way she moves. She's, if her queer character in Carol was dripping with femininity, this is the opposite of that. This is the most butch she has ever been on screen in her movement, in her gait, in the way she stands up, in the way she conducts, um, uh, in the way she wears clothes. We've seen we've seen Kate Blanchett, and she, you know she's one of the most photographed women in the world. She's always on red carpets, looking amazing. Um, but here, there is something different in the way she wears clothes. She's always someone who wears clothes well. But here, there is a little bit of severity. It's the clothes themselves, but it's also the way that she carries her, herself in them. Like, And Todd Field sort of like films her in a lot of scenes from far. So you see her full body in the frame, not just her face. And you can see the sort of like ramrod straight way she moves and sits and gets up and does all these things. And it's a completely different sort of like visual interpretation of the character that I've seen from her. Um, so these are some of the things I noticed. Tell me, Rafa, what did you see? <laughs> I agree. I can hear you talk about her for quite some time. I don't know what I have to add on top of that. But I think to me, I couldn't agree more with her merging to this character that was, as you say, entirely written for her. And she's in a position that is not necessarily one that we see her quite often. And I love how everything's about sharp edges, sharp edges of her face, sharp cuts of her clothes, um, the sharp edges of the theater lines and the strings of instruments and her voice. And everything to me felt so sharp. Um, and I am, as I said before, entirely entranced by the work that she has done with her hands. Um, she has made me realize how many little joints I have in my fingers. I, I left the cinema room like, I don't know if my fingers can move in that way. Um, I was just fascinated to watch her proud she is very minimalistic in this film and she enters an environment it's almost like you can hear her sniff around and measure where she is and go on a hunt when she sees young women she's just hunting when she sees someone that might have more power than her <laughs> she's hunting when she yeah. sees someone that when she sees someone that is on um, the case of her daughter, she's on the hunt. She's constantly in this position of predator. And mm -hmm. 
she never leaves that position, that predatorial position, which is why I believe I felt so on edge watching this. As you say, it's a very long film. And for the entirety of this film, I was almost on the edge of my seat because she puts us in this position of adrenaline mm-hmm. in her delivery. And even though she's very contained and it's not an explosion of physicality, the physicality is contained, but there's still so much thrill in everything. Uh, when she takes off her jacket and she puts it on a sofa, and you know that Jack is not going to get crinkled because she'd done it perfectly. It's just these two seconds. And I think about the effort that it takes for her to, to just master this. Um, when she plays the piano and then when she turns to play the accordion and the pulling and the pushing, um, I'm very fascinated with the physicality that she brings to Lydia Tarr. And, and as you said, I think for someone who is not familiar where the world of conducting as I am not and, and classical music, it feels mm-hmm. like a very male dominated world. And she makes a point of saying that this is a misconception and there have been plenty of mm-hmm. female conductors and it is a bit of a, a learning curve when you're watching the film, but when you approach it, you just think of this very male environment and not only male of, of men being in it, but male energy, this competitiveness, mm-hmm. this cutthroatness. Um, it's not a world of niceties. You, you no. don't get to a first chair. You don't get to conduct the Berlin Philharmonic by being nice to other people. And she's Absolutely just, not. <laughs> uh, she's so good in it. Yeah. Um, she, she is a predator. I mean, one of the things that sort of like, that Lydia Tarr, the character, refuses to deal with is sort of any is anything to deal with identity, whether it's her gender or her sexuality. She's dismissive of everything. As all narcissists are, she believes she got to where she got just by being herself and being how brilliant at what she does. So when somebody brings up um, her gender or what it means um, for for the position she has, she's very dismissive of it. When somebody else brings when somebody else brings their gender and what it means to how they operate in the world or their sexuality, she's also very dismissive of that. Um, and the thing that Kate Blanchett does so well in this performance, and that you know Lydia Tarr is not a good person by the way she is. And you know, let's leave the binary of good and bad. She's a complex person, but she's sort of somebody who's just perhaps not good to be around. Like you don't want to, obvious by the way things transpire in this movie, you don't want to be working for her. You don't want to be married to her. You don't want to be her boss. You don't want to be, um, you don't want her to be your boss. You don't want to be around her. And so what's amazing about this performance is that for her to get to where she did, like you said, she has to be somebody who is, charming and seductive and pulls people in and what Kate does is that she pulls the audience in and you can't help but fall in love with her a little bit because of what she does because she shows you how smart she is she shows you her intellect she shows you her talent she shows you how in command she is of that rehearsal room in the conducting scenes all of these things are things that you can't help but admire even though you know that there is a rot at the core of this and sort of this is like this is the amazing balance of this performance is that you get it and you're entertained, you're a little bit appalled, maybe a lot appalled, but you just can't help but watch. 
Yeah, you're right. And and you're saying she's not a nice person to be around. You probably don't want to be around her, but you have no other choice. Someone yeah. like Lydia Tarr um, in that level of genius is someone that we're just naturally drawn to, someone who has a talent that we cannot love or who is talented. We're just drawn to them. We might not necessarily love them or want to work with them and even want to talk to them. But there's this gravitational pull that talent has that is the foundation of this sociopathic behavior here because people want to be around her but not too close to her um and this play between near and far and barriers and intimacy is is very interesting yeah absolutely and so you know, people have called this the peak of Kate Blanchett's career. People have called it her best performance ever. People have called it her best role ever. And, you know, when when a movie like this premieres at Venice and only a few people see it and they do, they say proclamations that, like this. I'm not saying this was you because I don't think you said that. <laughs> but um, people made those proclamations. And I'm just like sitting at home reading these things. I'm just like, You're crazy. no. It's not going to be her best role. I've seen her best role. This is not going to top Blue Jasmine. This is not going to top. I'm not I'm not there. This is not going to top Carol. Like, whatever. It's a good part. I'm excited um, to see this movie. But now that I've seen it, like, I'm not ready yet to proclaim it her best ever. But I'm sort of like, I get I get people who say this is her best ever. And definitely people who say this is her best role ever. Yeah, I... I always take everything that comes out of a festival with a pinch of salt, including my own. <laughs> if I'm at a festival, I'm really excited to be at the festival. Yeah. Sometimes I'm really tired. I have not slept. I'm eating nothing but bread and tears. And everything that I will say will have a little bit of hyperbole to it. Um, so if you read my tweets when I'm at a festival, um, take 20% of it down. But <laughs> I think she's great. I think it's definitely one of the best of her career. But she's just one of those performers, as we were saying at the top of the podcast, that is so brilliant that saying this is her best performance ever, her best role ever, feels almost reductive of her range. Mm -hmm. She can be good in so many different ways. And I also think that it's quite fresh in my mind. And to be able to make such a bold statement, I would like to have a bit of distance from it and to mm -hmm. be able to think back and put it against other against other performances. Mm -hmm. I think time and distance are a blessing that we don't often have uh, yes. with films. But I can def I definitely agree with you. I think it's not only one of the most well-layered roles that she has ever played, but one of her best performances. Yeah, yeah. I think it's on the top there. And I agree with you about the time and distance because I am never ready to proclaim something the best ever, especially, you know, when somebody has a new movie and you sort of people rank it and suddenly the new thing is at number one. I'm just like, that's I'm never that. Um, so I will um, I'm I think by the time this podcast is out, I participated in a ranking of Kate Blanchett performances at the AV Club. I got to write about four of her movies. Um, they asked me my opinion on the ranking. I did not come up with the ranking, although they just asked me what I thought of it. Um, so I'm not going to, I don't agree or disagree with the ranking. It's not my ranking, 
But what I would say about that is that I agreed where they play star. They play star very, very high, but still not at number one. So, um, so check I'm the. <laughs> I'm not curious. You know what? It's a funny thing. I cannot rank anyone that I am a big fan of. If you yeah. see me doing any ranking pieces, and I'm probably burning myself for saying this, is someone that I might like, but I don't love because I feel very, I, I cannot be objective about performers and actors yeah. that I love. Like, I think everything they do is their best. I think yeah. they are the best. Yes. Uh, so, what I'll say about the ranking is that I always say that my favorite and best performances are Blue Jasmine and Carol. Um, I like The Aviator and I'm not there too, but they're just below that. Um, but I like Notes in a Scandal. I like a lot. So I think Tar is now in the mix, is in the mix of these top five or whatever. And then it changes because when you when you watch Carol for the 17th time, you're going to say this is number one. And when you watch Blue Jasmine for the 19th time, you're going to say, maybe it's number one or whatever. You know, it changes. And so with this, and I've seen it three times in less than two weeks, it's at the top there. But like you said, with time and distance, it might change. But um, if you're listening to this podcast, you're a fan of Kate Blanchett, you like her. So you're in for a treat is all. And get ready for for adjusting your rankings, because this, I think, will shoot not to the top spot, but to the top percentage in your rankings for sure (laughs) and how lucky are we that we get so many incredible Kay Blanchett performances and we don't even know what to do with them how to rank them yes absolutely um we are very lucky to get tar so I wanted to also just talk about the wonderful Nina Haas who plays Sharon who's Kate's uh, or who is Lydia's wife in this role she's also the first violinist uh, works at the same orchestra as Lydia and for me, when I was watching Nina Haas in this film, and I'm a huge fan of Nina Haas, um, I loved all her movies with Petzold. And I'm going to brag for a little, I just met her. I was lucky enough to be invited to the after party at New York Film Festival for Tar. And it was, you know, big party. Kate was at the center. She was very busy, surrounded by people the whole time. So I didn't get to meet Kate, but I met Nina Haas. Um, and Nina Haas was wonderful. This opinion of mine about Nina Haas um, I had before I met her. When I met her and found out she's so nice, it just sort of like adds to my admiration of her talent. But I've always admired her work, um, especially with Christian Petzold. And when I saw this film for the first time, I, I thought her performance was amazing. She's very magnetic. When I saw this movie for the second time, I understood so much of the story, the relationship, the history between Lydia and Sharon from all the cutaways to Nina Haas. I think um, the the script by Todd Fields is sort of like this dense jigsaw puzzle. Um, He never sort of like shows you everything. In fact, he never shows you um, the sort of like, so to speak, the events you think you might see. You never see somebody fired. You never see somebody actually being abused. You never see somebody like all the main quote unquote main events we think we might see are not in this movie. You see sort of like the before, how, how things can change and you see the aftermath, what the result is. And this is for everything. So if you're not paying attention, you might miss. And if you want to sort of like get the plot spoon fed to you, you're going to be a little frustrated with Tar. But what I think he does is that he casts Nina Haas. So whenever something is happening and he cut away to Nina Haas's face, you're like, okay, 
I know that look. Okay, I get what happened in this scene. Okay, I get what happened. I don't know, two scenes ago. Okay, now I understand. And she's so wonderful at doing that, at telling you everything with just a flicker of her eye or the way she tightens her lips, or it's just such wonderful, understated, brilliant work. Like Kate fills the screen with, she's in command of every bit of the frame. And then Nina Haas just quietly gets in there and tells you so much with just one look. Oh, I just love her. I love Nina Haas. I'm like, oh my God, how blessed are we that we have Kay Blanchard and Nina Haas. First of all, I think it's the funniest thing in the world that her German character's name is Sharon. It's like <laughs> Timothy Shalom maybe named Paul in Dune. I was like, her name is Sharon? I know. It's... I couldn't stop giggling. I thought it was so funny. It's such a sort um, of like um, a name from America in the 50s or 60s, something like that, right? There's no way her name is Sharon, um, but yes, it is. I I was very excited to see her play the violin again after the audition in a Vice's 2019 film, um, which she is a little bit more Lydia Tarr than she is Sharon in that film, although it's a very different film. Mm-hmm. Um, I I love her performances. I haven't seen a single bad Nina Hoss performance, and here she is so comfortable in the world that she's in there's no need to extrapolate or to cross a line that we're going to this massive space that is occupied by Lydia herself we were talking about spaces before and not only space of privilege these big open spaces and um the theater and the galleries but also is where words linger where Mm -hmm. sounds linger and when they're talking to each other when they leave the scene you can still hear what they were saying and the words are still in the air and I think Hoss's character and her performance is a brilliant contribution to this because it's everything that lingers without being said as you were saying Mm -hmm. Um, when she turns her back or when she if she craves the physicality that she misses from Lydia, but at the same time, she doesn't want to be a prop. Um, she doesn't want to be belittled. Um, she's very aware of the role that she has in making Lydia. And in this, it was a very interesting double bill that I had in Venice because I saw this almost back-to-back with Frederick Wiseman's A Couple, which is mm. about yet another partner of a big, brilliant genius in this case, mm-hmm. Tolstoy. And we don't often get the time to understand the people who have helped craft mm-hmm. some of the most brilliant voices that we have. And, and Nina Haas is very good in the understated, in the quiets, in the glances. Uh, and yeah, she's so good. She's, she's wonderful. And I love that you brought um, Wiseman as a couple because I think the movie makes a lot about Mahler and how Lydia Tarr is really into Mahler and sort of like, but she dismisses Alma, his wife. And I think what, um, even though Francesca, the Naomi Merlon character says, you know, Alma was an artist too, and you can't just dismiss her like that. And I think 
that conversation sort of mirrors the relationship between Lydia and Sharon. And I think Sharon is the Alma and she's somebody who's accomplished in her own sense. And, um, but she's also always in the shadow because she's not the top of this pecking order, this hierarchy at the Berlin Philharmonic. And do you think that the first violin of the Berlin Philharmonic is the smallest person in this relationship? It's like, oh my God, I would be very mad myself if I worked myself into being the first violinist of the Berlin Philharmonic. I think I would have met it down. Um, I don't think I would have been <laughs> generous enough to marry someone above me. Yes. Um, yeah. This is, it, it's such wonderful work. Um, so, the one thing that I would say about Lydia Tarr, like when I'm, I'm reading some of the, you know, tweets and reviews and whatever. Um, and what I wanted to say is that people have can find the comparison and they sort of compare this to like a Daniel Playview and there will be blood. Um, and I've seen Tony Soprano uh, in the Sopranos. I've seen, um, Jack LaMotta, which is all these narcissist, um, overachievers and so that goes to the to the what you said earlier in the podcast is that sort of that that's a bit reductive and i agree with that um and i couldn't personally come up with a with a comparison but i wanted to ask you what do you think of those comparisons i think is often a natural response when we watch a film or when we're subjected to to a piece of art to try and find references to help us understand what we've just seen mm-hmm. is an inclination that is very natural but i personally try my best to stay out of it i think whenever someone sets out to do to create a film to create a piece of work they have their references they have been fed art throughout their lives but at the same time it is a reflection of their personality and the things they love in the world and they deserve to be able to present their work to people who are open to see it as a standalone piece. But that being said, it's impossible not to compare what you're seeing to to things that you have seen before. Um, But I I have a hinge or a hunch that in a few years from now, people will be comparing other things to tar it will be the new there will be blood they will be referring back to this yeah it will become a point of reference in itself mm-hmm. um which i think is an achievement i think is to produce a piece of work that people seeing it for the first time can perceive as lasting mm-hmm. it's very hard and and Todd feels very good at doing that yeah it's only done three films which is insane it is <laughs> um, I, I can't believe it. I keep thinking back. I revisited his two films before speaking to you today. And I'm like, how in the world is this guy making more films? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I don't know if I responded to your question. No, I, I think you did. But I think you also brought up Todd Field and I wanted to bring him up because I, I really feel like, yes, it's been 16 years since his last movie and he only made two movies. But I think this is on another level, like even like, you know, he's always been perceptive. He's always wrote these screenplays that are sparse, but dense, uh, wrote these characters that, you know, are alluring, but also enigmatic. Um, 
all of these things are in his previous movies and his previous movies hinges on things that happen, but maybe they don't happen on screen. And then you see what happens after and you see sort of like, you know, the, the, the result of what happened and what it makes people do. Um, and all of that is in this movie. All of that is in this movie. And if sort of like, you know, little children about suburban ennui in America post 9-11, this is a movie that sort of like deals with what we're dealing with now in this post-pandemic, sort of like these cultural institutions coming under new scrutiny. Um, these sort of hierarchical cultural institutions all over the world, especially in the West, in America and Western Europe, coming under um under scrutiny. And so he wrote about something that everybody's dealing with, but I think it's just the writing is better. The direction is better. Everything is just, which is, you think that maybe if you haven't used your instrument for 16 years, maybe it's a little, it's a little rough, but it's not, it's sharp as ever. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I think first of all, um, the visuals, it, I just literally seen his two films back to back and they are all about performance. They're all about the writing. They are visually, I'm not going to say uninteresting because it's not true, but they don't have these concerns with set design, production design, costume design. It's not at the forefront of telling this story. Um, with Tar, he is all over it. Everything that you see contribute to the story that he's telling um not that this isn't true of his first two films but with tar it feels much more vital to storytelling i think the apartments in themselves are such a fantastic reflection of the characters the apartment that the women share and then the apartment that lydia keeps on the side her studio um, how they are, direct reflections of the space that they need when they're together and the space that they need when they're apart. As you said, the suits, the precision of a clothes maker, and it's funny because it just asked me if I wanted to compare Lydia Tar to someone. And I think it's funny that people people go to There Will Be Blood when there's a Daniel Day-Lewis performance that is much more familiar to Tar to me, which is we call in Phantom Thread. Yes, Phantom it, Thread, totally. <laughs> yeah. And it, it goes back to this. Um, I think the music and everything in Tar feels big, whereas in these first two films, um, there's a little bit more, not modesty, but... It's stripped back a little bit. Yeah, it's stripped back, but it's also, I think it's also like just bigger in like its scope. It's bigger in its, um, uh, it's stripped back in the aesthetics, I agree. But it's bigger in sort of like the scope and the ideas. Because I think he's dealing with with just big sort of like societal ideas and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, so um I thought I was making a point, but I lost my train of thought. <laughs> no, but you're right, because it, at the same time, I think the thread that unites these three films is this big ponderings on morality. Mm-hmm. You have an in the bedroom, you have this massive conflict, um, and you've spoiled it before, so I don't think I'm spoiling too much, but it's about death and loss and revenge and yeah. the relationships around it. And then with little children, it's about guilt and redemption and fear and moral rules. 
And then entire, once again, is all of these contemporary big words like gaslighting and, mm-hmm. um, yeah, manipulation and narcissism. So he's a very good director for ponderings on morality, even when they're not as big and flashy as they are in Tar. Yeah. So, but I wanted to mention one thing about Todd Field, what I liked about this and sort of like why I think his his work has, um, I don't want to say improved because that's a bit reductive, but his work has maybe just gone up to a higher level. And I think here, what I really love is he has all these long scenes, uninterrupted long scenes. There is one scene, which we will get into in details in a, in a, in a minute, but it goes on forever. And the camera is sometimes in the middle and sometimes to the side and it follows Kate, it follows the other characters. Um, it's just, it's something that I haven't seen from him before and sort of these long uninterrupted scenes immerse you even more in the story. And he gives the actors the space to sort of like act. So they're not always just acting in close up straight to the camera. There are a lot of close ups. You will see me and you'll see Kate. There are a lot of close ups, but there will, there are also a lot of scenes where he's just removed and it's like they're in a playground and you get to see them act with their whole bodies. You get to immerse yourself in what else is in the frame. Um, to your point, the production design, the costumes, the movement of the actors, everything. And it's just like, it's rewarding as you're watching because there's so much detail in the frame that you can luxuriate in. And I think this is what sort of distinguishes Star um, from his previous films. Yeah, I I agree. And also the big unspoken word in this point is budget. That boy was giving some money. (laughs) And that makes a really big difference in in the final result. Um, He managed to go to big locations, to have big names, to have a team that made that film look the way it does. And I think it was just a matter of someone believing that this is what he was capable of and, and deserving of. Um, and yeah. I'm glad that Focus did. Yeah, totally. So if you're listening, um, you can maybe uh, put the podcast on pause or uh, skip 10 minutes because we're going to get into spoilers uh, for 10 minutes and then we'll be back to general TAR talk. Um, so Rafa, I wanted to bring up two very specific scenes and this, this is a spoilers. So the first scene that is getting a lot of getting people riled up is Lydia Tarr is a, a teacher at Juilliard and there is, and she's teaching a class and she has a student who um, self-described himself as a BIPOC um, and that he's, uh, and that this BIPOC student is not interested in Bach because of Bach's transgressions, transgressions as a white male. And Lydia, of course, dismisses that. And what I loved about, um, and this is the scene that I sort of talk about as being the one where the camera's in the middle and it has different point of views and you go back and forth. And so this scene to me was completely non-judgmental. Depending on where you are, you could be with Lydia, if that's what you want to be, or you could be with her student. And you can sort of like um, get into the back and forth and also just kind of relish a little bit how dismissive, but dismissive in such a smart, cutting way Lydia is. Um, so I wanted to ask you what you thought of that scene. 
that scene is what people will be talking about um, when they talk about the film throughout this entire award season. I think that would be the key scene if, um, and I think it's not an if, it's a when, mm-hmm. Kate gets nominated for an Oscar, this will be her clip. Um, and I think it is a scene that was written precisely to do what it does, mm-hmm. to create controversy. And it is the big turning point mm-hmm. where you stop seeing Lydia as this genius, this groundbreaking genius and all positive. And you see her as almost, you know, in Mission Impossible, when people take a mask off and they're not Tom Cruise, they're the villain. <laughs> yes. Um, this is the reveal. Um, and is when Todd Field goes into morality. And yeah. um, it starts with a very interesting question of art versus artist. Mm-hmm. Um, do you endorse someone by consuming or appreciating what they've created, which is too big of a question, not only for today, but for forever i don't think i don't have a formed opinion on this um, neither do i back to me um but when she says don't be so eager to be offended not only is the delivery perfect mm-hmm. people were clapping in the theater when this happened um mm-hmm. is just an encapsulation of something that gets under my skin which is to connect people's sensitivities to issues as a an eagerness to be offended um, mm-hmm. as if they everyone needed to have an opinion on everything is such a, a shallow and small way of dismissing people's sensitivities and when we were watching this film first screening for press and and everyone in venice on that scene when she starts really digging into the student there were people clapping and hollering and hooting and I was so uncomfortable mm. that yeah. um, I I was sinking in my chair thinking this is a person that is enabling feelings and reactions that I am in strong opposition to in a way that is so intellectual and nicely packaged that people feel entitled to um not verify it not just um, but you agree with it in a yeah, way yeah. that they feel comfortable with I'm, I'm trying not to be too controversial yeah um, but yeah it, it is it is a big which side are you on um yeah what are your beliefs so the, the reaction in New York was a little different. There was never any hooting on hollering, but there was laughter. I don't think anybody clapped. I think there was sort of like, ooh, what there was, everybody was enjoying it because it's so well-directed, well-acted. It's like a thing to behold, but you're right. And in the in the press conference after our screening, Todd Field said that was the first thing he wrote. That was the first thing he wrote in the story. So you note, I think that also proves your point, which which you said that this scene was written to to turn the story and to be controversial. And it is a controversial scene. And it is what this movie does. It makes you think about things that maybe you didn't want to think. And maybe if you are in a big room with a lot of other people, some people will react to it differently and it's a scene that's supposed to make us all a little bit uncomfortable because while I liked it I was a little bit uncomfortable too um and I don't I don't like you said earlier like I don't have I'm not 
on the side of either of these people. And I don't think the film is either. I think what I like about the scene is that you can get reactions that are on Lydia's side or reactions that are on the student's side. But I think the film itself stays away from taking a side because this is Lydia is a central character, but she's never the point of view character. Not in that scene, not at any point in this movie. Yeah, um, I think it's a very clever scene. I like the beginning of a modern idea. I think it starts getting a little bit too overexposed uh, when she goes and say, the architect of your solo appears to be social media. I'm like, oh, girl, you're this well. You are being so subtle. Um, and... But that's also like shows you someone like her, right? Someone who's yeah. maybe a little older, who hasn't grown up in, in social media and also who's, who's dismissive of anything that doesn't, that she's not good at or that's something that doesn't feed her power and her status, right? She probably doesn't get that much out of social media. So of course she'll be dismissive of it. Yeah. Yeah. And it goes back to that idea that of course she doesn't spend time on social media when she has when she has a little bit of extra time she's probably studying music or reading a book or doing pilates i don't know what the hell she's doing but she's not yeah. going to be scrolling on twitter yeah that's for sure, sure. um that's just for me <laughs> <laughs> for me too i love twitter <laughs> yeah. i love it too much so the other thing that is, because um, I don't want the spoiler uh, bit to be too long, but the other thing that has been divisive, divisive talking with friends is the ending. I personally like the ending. Um, and, and with Todd Fields, and if you've listened to the other two episodes I did on Little Children in the Bedroom, his endings have always been, I don't want to say controversial, but let's say different. And I think um, sometimes it's as if he's starting a new story. It's as if he told us the story he wanted to tell us, but he's not sure that where to end it. And so he'll just, rather than end it, he will tell us a new story with the same characters. And I think that's in Little Children and that's in, in the bedroom and it's in here in Tar. So after what happens with Lydia, she's accused of um, using her position to court so sexual favors from people who work for her. She's fired. Although we never see her fired. We just are supposed to get that, but we understand that she's fired and she gets this job at... Um, what we think is an orchestra somewhere in Asia. Um, and the film then goes with her in Asia. She's preparing. And then the final shot, it's revealed that she is working as a conductor in our orchestra at a theme park. And so she's definitely hit rock bottom. Um, there are two things I feel about the ending. I like the ending in that it fits Dot Field. I, I like that he wants to show us what has happened to Lydia after um, her life in Berlin ended. Um, I like that he, he tried to show us that. Um, I think the one thing, if I have one reservation about this movie, I think is that so far until that ending, it hasn't really um, tipped the balance of what it thinks of Lydia. And maybe with that ending, it tipped it a little bit. I'm not sure if it tipped it against her or for her, but I think the balance is, it's a little off balance. I don't know, are we supposed to feel sympathy uh, or are we supposed to like rejoice in that? Um, but you definitely are supposed to feel one of those two things. And I think feeling either of those two things sort of tips the balance of this so far really very balanced, clear, straight movie that doesn't want to take sides. Yeah, I... Uh... 
it's a funny thing because I think it's such a diversion from his other two films in the way of endings. Interesting. I, yeah, I, I really like the endings of his first two films, especially in the bedroom. I think those are so powerful because they're just people trying to return to a certain sense of routine after something that is so not routine. And this is what life is about. When something momentous happens to you, you just go back and you cook your breakfast and you pay your taxes. Ooh, yes, yes, that's and true. And we just have this idea that films put in our mind that when something massive happens to us, there's a different conclusion or our lives are forever changed. And in my humble experience, that's not it. Um, yeah. And I think his first two films are very good at doing that. And with Tar, that was such a disappointment to me. Um, I think he had a perfect ending, and I might be far too on the nose by saying this, but he had this perfect ending on her meltdown that was so whiplash of him. It was a mm -hmm. perfect scene on stage when she completely loses it. I was hoping she would remove the wig of a strong character. I was hoping she would pull the wig <laughs> off. I'm like, if this happens, I will ascend to heaven. I swear to God. Um but it is this moment where she loses the control that she's been nurturing throughout the film. It's the first time that she steps out of that zone of precision mm -hmm. entirely. And she goes towards the, the other side of the, the animalistic, as we were saying, not the prowling, but the pouncing, really. Um, and I would have loved for the film to end there. Mm -hmm. I think it would have been so good i think when it goes when it goes to asia and she goes a little bit ypre love going onto that boat and the river and connecting with nature and then there's that dodgy sauna scene yeah it's a brothel yeah 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 it's a brothel we know it um and then it ends up she's on epcot or something it is a fall from grace yeah um it does provide us with a, an insight on, on what this grace looks like. Mm -hmm. And let's be honest, this grace is an overheated theme park on a Thursday afternoon. Yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> but, but it's just, I felt it was just a bit too much. Even her her backstory, her coming back home. I'm like, I don't need this. Mm -hmm. I think he's, he's dipping into overexposure and he's so good in subtlety in in believing his audience, as you said in a different episode, and trusting their audience um, yeah. to, to just fill in those gaps. Yeah, I didn't feel any of these things. I didn't think this was an eight prey love. I think she was still lost. She didn't know what to do. Hence the sort of like the reaction, the sort of bodily reaction when when she goes to the brothel. I think she's completely lost there. Um, and I get what you were saying about he maybe tells us a little bit too much with the backstory. Um, but I also sort of like would not take away um, some of that. I mean, like in Little Children, he has that Madame Bovary scene where they just sit around and talk about Madame Bovary for like five minutes. And you're like, okay, he's telling us the Kate Winslet character is Madame Bovary. We get it. It's a little bit on the nose, but I also want to see that because the scene is good and the actors in it are great. And I want it, even though it is sort of like obvious. So I think he sometimes dips into that toe, but I think I liked it in both Little Richard. It, I can't speak in both little children and in tar. Um, but I know this, 
this ending is going to be very divisive. And what I love about it is like, look at what we just, you and I just talked about. Um, I think it's going to be father for conversation for months to go and how exciting it is that we get a movie like tar to talk about for months instead of whatever people talk about that i don't watch superhero movies so most of the conversation on twitter is just like i don't know what you guys are talking about so i'm very excited to have conversations with people like you um rafa about this movie for months to come because i think these conversations like movies when they're successful are a conversation starter and Tar is a dense, deep conversation starter. There's so many things to talk about. Like I could sit here and talk to you for another couple of hours about so many other things in this movie. <laughs> oh, me too. And I love, I absolutely love when I come out of a film and someone has a different point of view. I love that someone liked the ending. I think that this is why we do what we do. We spend far too many hours watching films and yeah. speaking to the handful of people who watch them as well. And I agree with you. I think we are all so very lucky to have films like Tar to dig into for better or for worse. Um, and debates that to me feel very vital to where we are now as a whole instead of the incredibly entertaining, albeit part too petty drama that we often get on Twitter. And yes. Tara offers us something different. Um, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So we both love Tar. We recommend it. Um, here in the podcast, I'm going to have a couple more episodes about Tar um, to discuss different things about it. Um, but Rafa, this has been so wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking to me. This was a wonderful conversation. I had the best time. Um, before we go, please let our listeners know where they can find you and your work. Thank you so much. I'm kind of sad that we are ending. I'm hoping that Kate Blanchard does many more films so I can come back. Yes, definitely. Uh, <laughs> no, this was wonderful. I am very grateful that I got to rewatch Fields work and, and then chat over Tar with you. If anyone wants to find me, I am far too active on Twitter for my own sanity. Uh, Hafiz, R-A-F-I-E-W-S. That is also my personal website, just a .com. My inbox is always open i love chatting with people about films please be polite i am going to try and do the same yes. thank you so much thank you rafa and you can find me on twitter at me underscore says you can read my review of tar on the av club and you can listen to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts or at sundayswithscape.com and follow us on twitter and Instagram at Sundays with Kate. And until next time, thank you for listening.